should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome to the show. It's Friday, so that means I'm out. And it's also hashtag FOF or FOF. Friends on Fridays. This Friday, we will broadcast John Zipper's week to week show. The program today is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer. I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week to Week Politics Program. You can find out more about Week to Week and all of the Commonwealth Club's many programs, including videos and audio, at CommonwealthClub.org. Now let's join this week's program. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. I'd like to welcome our live audience here in San Francisco and our radio and online audiences. It's my great pleasure to introduce Patrick Iber, the author of Neither Peace Nor Freedom, a very interesting book about Latin American cultural history and how uh, the Cold War after World War II affected the people that were pulled into that dragnet. Patrick Iber. Thank you very much, George, and thank you all for coming. I'm very happy to be speaking here uh, with you tonight. I'm going to begin with Valentin El Campesino Gonzalez, who made his name as a communist general in the Spanish Civil War uh, from 1936 to 1939, where he was famous both for his innovative use of guerrilla tactics and for his brutality. But in early 1950, the FBI was looking for him, not for his crimes, but so that he might testify before a congressional subcommittee investigating international communism. When the Spanish Civil War had been lost to Francisco Franco's nationalists, El Campesino had escaped to the Soviet Union and there grew disillusioned and had been forced to do uh, labor digging tunnels for the Moscow subway and eventually was uh, escaped a Soviet prison camp by traveling on foot to Iran. He was a valuable convert, and he drew the attention of the anti-communist networks of the early Cold War, including anti-communist unions, uh, social democratic politicians in Europe, and U.S. government agencies, including the fledgling CIA, which was established a few years earlier in 1947. But El Campesino, the name means the peasant, was nearly illiterate, and he needed a handler. This man, Julian Gorkin, became his unlikely partner. Gorkin, too, had once been imprisoned, a leader of the quasi-Trotskyist uh, Partido Obrero, the Unificación Marxista. It was a, a, a party, the PUM, most famous 
for being the party that George Orwell fought with when he was in uh, in Spain during the Spanish Civil War. So his his account, uh, homage to Catalonia, uh, he describes his time fighting with the Pum. Gorkin was one of the was one of the leaders of, the, of that of that small party. He'd been accused of treason by communist authorities during the Spanish Civil War and served 18 months in prison. Was as lucky to escape Spain at the end of the 1930s as El Campesino would be to escape the Soviet Union many years later. Gorkin eventually made his way uh, to Mexico, like many uh, who found themselves at the losing side of the Spanish Civil War. When Trotsky was murdered in, uh, in 1940, Gorkin used his connections with the Mexican police to expose the responsibility of Stalin's agents for the assassination. And he lived with the novelist Victor Serge until Serge's death in 1947. In 1948, Gorkin returned to Paris. What a stupendous brute. In the time of the conquistadors, he would have been a Pizarro, wrote Gorkin after his first pair of days with El Campesino. During the Spanish Civil War, the communist El Campesino might have jailed or even killed the Pumista Gorkin if he'd had the chance. But by 1949, they were both convinced anti-communists and they needed each other. Gorkin shepherded El Campesino through Western Europe. El Campesino testified that the Soviet Union represented nothing more than fascism with a red flag. Throughout their travels around the world, Gorkin acted as El Campesino's ghostwriter. Read your article for today in case somebody questions you about it, Gorkin told El Campesino during their trip to Cuba. Eventually, they came to Mexico, where they were set up at a CIA safe house in the city of Cuernavaca, kept hidden even from the FBI. This is when the FBI is looking for them. They're at a CIA safe house. There, Gorkin formed El Campesino's life story into an autobiography. Here it is, Life and Death in the Soviet Union. Um, which was quickly published and widely distributed in multiple languages. Quote, a rumor has been spread by word of mouth that El Campesino and I are American agents, Gorkin wrote to a friend around the time the two were working together in the CIA safe house. <laughs> American agents, we who have never received help from the United States for the work we are doing and who would surely be denied a visa to, the, to enter the United States. Now, as somebody who had belonged to a communist party, in fact, he was the, the founder of the Communist Party of Valencia, part of Spain, Gorkin had indeed been denied a visa to the United States when he sought to testify some years earlier before the Dies Committee in the early 1940s. But, of course, the rumor was true enough, and it wouldn't be the last time that Gorkin's path crossed with U.S. intelligence operations. I begin with this anecdote for uh, a few reasons. Because it illustrates several features of Latin America's cultural Cold War. First, let's talk about what exactly the cultural Cold War means. You know, the, the Cold War uh, is not a war that ever results, except very briefly in the skies above Korea, and no one wants to talk about that, uh, in, into direct military conflict between the two superpowers. There's military buildup and so on, but the competition remained at other levels. It was essentially a civilizational conflict uh, to prove who had the superior form of... of, uh, of of economy, uh, superior political organization. And this led the competition to have some unusual expressions from the point of view of uh, uh, contemporary thinking about, uh, about war. It had a significant cultural dimension. That is to say, because both the Soviet Union and the United States were trying to prove that theirs was the superior civilization, the, just about any kind of artistic performance or otherwise, scientific competition, a chess match, 
could become uh, a sign of a superior culture. And so uh, this was a time when the work of artists and intellectuals was taken very seriously by the states that were involved. Cultural figures were simultaneously part of this global ideological conflict, while at the same time being part of national level political debates. So the, the, the Cold War made cultural production something of great political interest to the great powers. And Latin America's cultural Cold War was part of a global Cold War, as the story of, uh, of, uh, of El Campesino and, and Julian Gorkin demonstrates. But it's also true that what happened in Latin America, what happened in Cuba, what happened in Mexico mattered for the rest of the world as it sought to understand what the struggle for social justice was as expressed through, through art and ideas. The other reason that I like to begin with, that, with the, the, that anecdote is that it shows the rootedness of the cultural Cold War in pre-Cold War politics. This is about the Spanish Civil War and what happens as a result of people's experiences in the Spanish Civil War. The El Campesino and Gorkin's experiences with communism in the 20s and in the 30s are what made them into anti-communists, and we'll see that kind of pattern repeatedly. So sometimes the cultural Cold War gets boiled down by people to a sort of simple story of the CIA manipulating sort of cultural influences here and there. We'll talk about those kinds of manipulations, but they are only possible because of the political experiences that predate the, the very existence of the CIA itself. So the Cold War brings money kind of like a flooding rain over the desert of left politics, where once there was little, now there will be too much. And finally, the anecdote shows the small space between the fantasy of independence for the politically committed intellectual and the reality of very difficult relationships with intelligence and other state agencies that they will face. Gorkin had a lonely agenda for a long time as an anti-communist on the left, and then he ends up working with CIA money for many, many years. There are a couple of things that make the Latin American story a bit different from the European story, which has been uh, described by other historians uh, in greater detail. One is the unbalanced and overwhelming power of the U.S. in the region. The Soviet Union is weak in Latin America. The U.S. is very strong. So anti-imperial sentiment is directed against the United States. So nationalist sentiment is usually anti-U.S. Uh, and the other is the specter of possible social revolution. There is a Mexican revolution at the early, in the early 20th century. We'll get to Cuba uh, before too long. That's at the end of the 1950s. Uh, and so this sense of possibility that a uh, revolution could occur made intellectuals, most of them on to the left, uh, on the left, that is, activists with real influence. The, the writer Gabriel Garcia Marquez was surely exaggerating when he quipped that, quote, in the history of power in Latin America, there are only military dictatorships or intellectuals. But it's a common enough idea. The intellectuals in Latin America declared Brazilian sociologist Fernando Enrique Cardoso in 1971 are the voice of those who cannot speak for themselves. And the Mexican writer Carlos Fuentes similarly argued toward the end of the Cold War that where civil society was repressed, the intellectual had to take on multiple social roles as, quote, a tribune, a member of parliament, a labor leader, a journalist, and a redeemer of his society. So both Cardoso and Fuentes are articulating a pretty common understanding of the position of Latin American intellectuals in the second half of the 20th century as privileged communicators from a part of the world riven by some of its deepest inequalities. Their challenge was not simply to interpret the continent, but to change it 
and progressive left-wing authors and artists from the region were said to be unusually close to political power. They were appointed to diplomatic posts. They worked to lobby rulers on behalf of a kind of assumed popular voice. They opposed, they even assassinated dictators, and they sometimes came to hold high political office themselves. But, as Albert Camus had warned, every revolutionary ends up becoming either an oppressor or a heretic. Intellectuals' relationships to government within and outside the region made them both allies and oppressors and opponents of oppression at the same time. It was not as simple as electing to be an oppressor or a heretic. The choices facing intellectuals from Latin America during the Cold War meant that they were often both simultaneously. So how could this be so? What I'd like to do today is to take you through brief highlights of three organizations, the three main ones for politically engaged intellectuals in Latin America. Those organizations were the World Peace Council, which was a Soviet-aligned organization that, beginning in the 1940s, championed the idea that the West, was, uh, everyone in the West, were imperialist warmongers, while the Soviet Union was the paladin of social justice and global anti-imperialism. It was created officially in 1950, though there were some conferences in the previous two years that had sounded the same kind of themes. Its principal rival was known as the Congress for Cultural Freedom. This was the anti-communist group that was organized initially to combat the influence of the World Peace Council. Uh, it was funded throughout its existence by a combination of uh, the CIA and a few major foundations, including the Ford and Rockefeller Foundations. It steered away, however, from very right-wing thinkers, preferring a kind of liberal or social democratic ethos and styling itself as anti-ideological, uh, by which it meant that it was against extreme ideologies that it associated with totalitarianism. It was against fascism, it was against communism. And finally, after the Cuban Revolution, we get a new entry, at least for the Latin American scene, where the Cuban government sponsors its own cultural diplomacy through an institution known as the Casa de las Americas, the House of the Americas, and they had a magazine with that same name promoting ideas of revolutionary nationalism. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. So let's begin at the beginning, or at least one possible beginning. After World War II, the Soviet Union is reassembling its international networks. Uh, the famous Comintern, the Communist International, had shut down as a gesture to the Allies during the war. But it creates a kind of successor, the Communist Information Bureau, the Common Form, in 1947. And within literature and the arts in the Soviet Union, Stalin sought to enact a very repressive agenda uh, domestically. They resurrected the idea of a, a single acceptable art form known as socialist realism, uh, and everything else fell outside of what was officially sanctioned. It would be called formalism or decadent or bourgeois. Uh, 
uh, and this intersected with one of the major themes, the Soviet themes of that era, that of peace. Uh, the U.S. had the world's only nuclear weapons until uh, 1949 and had used them against civilians in Japan. So peace propaganda focused on Western warmongering in contrast with the supposedly uh, Pacific interests of the, of the Soviet Union. Now, not surprisingly, you can find uh, any number of examples of what look like hypocritical behavior, what are hypocritical behavior, the behaviors, things like peace drives in Eastern Bloc countries being used to finance rearming to defeat Yugoslavia or something like that. But, you know, put that aside for the moment. The other th important theme of the era was anti-cosmopolitanism. Anti this was anti-Semitic in the Soviet context, but adaptable globally as a critique of imperialism and capitalist culture. So it was said cosmopolitanism, by which was meant Western culture, had become the predatory weapon of U.S. imperialism, inverting the traditional critique of capitalism by saying that it was the U.S., unlike totalitarianism, which is always accused of suppressing individual freedom, right? They say, no, 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 it's the West that does this by dazzling its citizens out of their individuality and thus even their ability to produce great works of art. So the Latin American peace movement was limited very lar largely to its communist parties, which were mostly small and a few fellow traveling activists. Pablo Neruda, the great Chilean poet, was perhaps the most important. He had been an organizer for cultural activities during the Spanish Civil War and had joined Chile's Communist Party and was even a senator from Chile's Communist Party uh, in, in Chile at the end of the 1940s. In 1947, uh, Chile passed a law outlawing communism and Neruda fled across the Andes and then to Europe where he appeared before a stunned public at a peace event in Paris. Uh, most people, he'd been in hiding for more than a year, and people thought that he was probably dead. He then spent the next years of his life working on behalf of the Soviet-aligned peace movement. He tried to write socialist realist poetry, had, had many other styles that he had, had, uh, pr had practiced quite successfully earlier, but in this period he tries to write to conform to sort of official Soviet state ideologies. At a major peace gathering held in Mexico City in 1949, he read and performed a poem uh, called Let the Woodcutter Awaken or Let the, Let the Rail Splitter Awaken because it's about Lincoln. And it took the form of a song and a plea to the United States for a return to the spirit of, of Lincoln, who he thought could put an end to the blight of racism and warmongering and hatred that Neruda saw as typifying in the United States of the late 1940s. Uh, let Abraham come and let him heft his people's axe against the new slavers, against the slave's whip, against the poison press, against the bloody merchandise that they want to sell. And he imagined a kind of smiling, multiracial uprising against the, quote, manufacturer of hatred, the United States. It's epic poetry, and it's a very pure distillation of the politics of the peace movement adapted to the Latin American setting. If North America's hero, Lincoln, lies dormant and absent in this work, Let the Woodcutter Awaken offers a parallel figure who is the very picture of present vigilance. And that's, of course, Joseph Stalin. So the Verses dedicated to Stalin are, include things like his bedroom light is turned off late, the world and his country allow him no rest, things that uh, perhaps have not held up particularly well as, uh, as uh, among Neruda's best verses. Um, here's a, a picture of this Continental Congress for Peace in Mexico City uh, in 1949. Had these, they had to do it in a sports arena because everyone else denied them the license to come and do it. But you can see the 
the peace doves hanging from the ceiling. It was Picasso's painting of a pigeon that became the symbol of peace. It was for this peace movement, right? One of the uh, observers who was you know, sitting in the back from the U.S. Embassy, like the third secretary or something like that, wrote that they looked more like buzzards than doves to him, and they drooped a little bit more each day. But we can't expect him to have been a sympathetic observer of the, of the proceedings. Uh, at a conference he organized in 1953 in Santiago, Neruda said, quote, I know and admire the Soviet people and its leaders for their extraordinary deeds indelible in human history, but what I admire in that land most of all is its dedication to culture, and perhaps above all else, with the full flowering of the individual as never before achieved in history. So this is a, 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 an unusual interpretation of what was going on in the Soviet Union at that time. Let's put it that way. Uh, there were others, important artists who were also involved in the peace movement. Uh, the also great Mexican painter Diego Rivera painted this in 1952. It was supposed to be a, a, a it was supposed to be for a Mexican a Mexican exhibition in France. The U.S. Embassy uh, encouraged the Mexican delegation not to use this piece of artwork, and they complied. Um, so this is called uh, Pesadilla de Guerra, Sueño de Paz, Nightmare of War, Dream of Peace, right? And I'll direct your attention to the upper left corner. One of the, the techniques that the peace movement used was to have these signature campaigns. So they would go out. The most famous one was called the Stockholm Appeal. Uh, and they would collect signatures on the street for, in defense of their interests. So what you can see in the, in the upper left-hand uh, corner here are uh, Stalin and Mao. Mao is holding a dove, and Stalin is holding a pen and, a, and the paper that he is offering to the Western powers. And the Western powers, they're represented by Uncle Sam in the back, John Bull representing the UK, and Marianne, the symbol of France, right there. Then they're all looking rather skeptically and, and frowny-faced at, at the generous offering that we're receiving from Stalin and Mao. And you can't see it in this picture at this resolution, but Uncle Sam back there is carrying a, a machine gun and a Bible. So it's not perhaps Diego Rivera's subtlest work. Not, not, a, not a painter necessarily known for his subtlety. But you could also see here Frida Kahlo, his wife, right, gather, also gathering signatures in her wheelchair. It was a, few, it was a, a couple of years before she died. Um, uh, and, and Rivera was struggling to get back into the Mexican Communist Party, which had kicked him out. He had actually been very close to Trotsky when Trotsky was in Mexico. They kicked him out. So he's trying to, he's trying to do his best to put the messages of the movement into painted form or to get himself back into the party. This, I'm afraid, was not enough for him. They wouldn't let him in for Nightmare of War, Dream of Peace. They did let him in a couple years later when Frida passed away and... Uh, he promised the Mexican government a non-political funeral, and then he draped her coffin at the last second with a Soviet flag. So that was enough. Then they let him back in. Uh, the final example I have for you of, a, of someone who put his shoulder to the wheel of World Peace Council culture it was the Brazilian novelist Jorge Amado, another peace activist. How can you, as a writer, admire and love the Soviet Union, a Brazilian official once asked Amadu, and he replied that he loved the Soviet Union because of the full freedom of printing, criticism, and self-criticism that existed there, explaining that there was no need for an opposition press when publishing responsibilities lay with the state, which was the authentic representation of the people. So 
If one takes the, quote, independent critic as the ideal model for intellectuals, this was a reminder that a committed intellectual was indeed a very compromised one. And Amadou, who distanced himself from the Communist Party later on, writes in his memoirs of his deep sadness at learning of the existence of official Soviet anti-Semitism in that era, and thus the falsity of his beliefs about the achievement of Soviet ethnic and racial harmony. But that had not stopped him from using the language of cosmopolitanism in peace propaganda during that era. Under Stalin, Amadou later reflected, it was not easy being a communist, but to stop remained, at least for another couple of years, uh, unthinkable. And part of the reason for that was that people like Neruda and Amadou had become more than simple ideologists. They were also symbols of the damage done to Latin American democracy by anti-communism, not by communism. I've mentioned a few times um, that these meetings did take place. Uh, Mexico City and Santiago, uh, Chile, uh, a few years later. But there were far more that were broken up by police or were prohibited from taking place. And hopes for a more democratic Latin America, which had bubbled up at the end of World War II, uh, very much broke on the rocks of Cold War politics. Nobel laureate, the poet Gabriela Mistral, uh, wrote an essay speaking out against the repression of the peace movement, saying that Latin America was paying a cost in intimidation and self-censorship. And she complained a few years later when communists started printing and distributing the thousands of copies of her essay as if it had been written in support of the peace movement. It wasn't in support of the peace movement. It was an essay against the repression of the peace movement. But fundamentally, I think there were two sides to the peace movement's repression. One was the problem of repression of criticism of the Soviet Union that its partisans engaged in. But the other was the suppression of the pro-peace movement, which almost certainly did more damage to democratic politics in Latin America than its presence did. And that leads us directly into the anti-peace campaigns and the origins of the uh, CIA-sponsored Congress for Cultural Freedom I mentioned earlier. For every time that a peace gathering was set to be held, anti-communist activists appeared to try and undermine it. Um, Rodrigo Garcia Trevino, uh, for example, was a Mexican ex-communist who had also been close to Trotsky while Trotsky was in Mexico. And pr prior to that 1949 meeting in Mexico City, went to the U.S. Embassy in Mexico and asked for information about the communist connections to its delegates. He then put those out in the press, attributing the information to socialist allies throughout the hemisphere. So let's just stop for a second and think of what, about what this guy is doing. The, he knows there's going to be a peace conference in Mexico City. He goes to the U.S. Embassy. He says, look, I know this is a communist front, and I'll expose it as a communist front with, you know, and all with all of my press connections. If you just give me all the information you have about all the delegates who are coming, and the U.S. embassy says, that seems like a great idea. Let's do that. We have our most of our connections are with the right wing press. It would be great if somebody on the left would condemn this thing outright too. And then Garcia Trevino goes home with all the information provided to him by the U.S. Embassy and sends it out in the press, attributing it to, quote, socialist allies. Well, it's not often that the U.S. government gets accurately described as a socialist ally, uh, and, uh, and indeed it is not. Um, and that might seem farcical. On the face, it kind of is. But Rodrigo Garcia Trevino becomes the Mexican representative of the Congress for Cultural Freedom, which is created in 1950 to serve as an anti-communist organization. And it truly did feature some socialist thinkers. So here I can show you 
uh, a street kiosk. This is in Santiago, Chile in 1956. And the, the poster at the, at the kiosk advertises Congress for Cultural Freedom events. It advertises a, a meeting of the Youth Committee of the Congress for Cultural Freedom. And then it ad, advertises several different talks that are, that are happening. And the speeches are not by people with the kind of fame like Neruda that you might have heard of before, but uh, locally important uh, folks. And they included uh, Julio Cesar Jovet, who was a socialist intellectual who argued for a humanist Marxism, uh, a man named Raul Retig, who was a leader of Chile's radical party, which is in the Chilean context a moderate party, but that's never mind, who served as Salvador Allende's ambassador to Brazil and was the lead author of the Truth Commission's report many years later on the crimes committed by the Pinochet regime. So the people who were involved with this with this group, I hasten to to, to emphasize, were not uh, reactionary uh, in in politics. They were very much on the left, and there is a way in which, because the CIA was financing this uh, this venture, uh, they were the U.S. government was in a socialist ally, in in at least of a particular kind of uh, of anti-communist socialist. Gorkin, who we mentioned earlier, began traveling around Latin America at the beginning of the 1950s to establish all the local networks and the committees. He became the head of the Latin American operation of the Congress and the editor of its flagship magazine, Cuadernos, which means notebooks. It's not a particularly good name for a magazine. In 1954, when the Congress for Cultural Freedom held its first international meeting in Latin America, an Uruguayan poet in attendance offered a toast, quote, to the only form of imperialism that I recognize, liberty. Now, he's surely aware of the inversion of assumptions. I mean, surely imperialism negates liberty in some important way that are, I guess, the source of what wit there's supposed to be in his remark. But he's almost certainly not aware that the, that the Congress for Cultural Freedom to which he belongs is covertly financed by the U.S. government as a weapon of the Cold War, which heightened the contradictions at the heart of his little toast. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. I'm Heclina. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for almost 20 years. And uh, over the past couple of months, I just opened up my club, Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now because the city has been changing a lot. I always had this attitude of, of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody, and that's just kind of the attitude and the, the, uh, the ethics of Oasis, is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know, you know, it's funny because I still need to, I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true, you know what I mean? Like I walk in there and, and I go up to the bar and I go, oh, can I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like, I forget that it's my place. Running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that gay people now, they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be in a gay bar all the time. So you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I, I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it, I work really hard at what I do. I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. 
So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like, like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll, they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? That's just always been my attitude. Um, just to entertain people and so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity and, uh, and you know, don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for you. Spotlight on success and achievement. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. The imperialism of liberty, I think, proves a pithy description of the politics of the organization to which he belonged. And what do they do? What does the Congress for Cultural Freedom do? Well, they mentioned their big magazine already. They have literary magazines all across the world. Uh, they have uh, the the most uh, famous and successful one is Encounter magazine, which was published in London. Quite a very quite a good literary magazine, but they have magazines in France and Italy and Germany and and uh, for the Spanish speaking world, they have them in Japan and Australia and and India as well. So it's a, it's a worldwide operation. Um, they hold conferences. They have a news service. They subsidize book publishing. So there are a number of of significant books which are published with. Uh, indirectly with CIA support. Anyway, uh, there are more ironies in store for us. Uh, during the International Forum of 1954, the communist newspaper tried to establish the sort of unchilean nature of the Congress by accusing it of taking money from a foreign power. Now, even the Congress for Cultural Freedom's own delegates wonder who had paid their travel expenses. But the public story was that the Congress for Cultural Freedom received no U.S. government Monday money, but was funded by free trade union organizations like the International Arm of the American Federation of Labor, which is very anti-communist, and private foundations like the like the Rockefeller Foundation and the the Ford Foundation. And one uh, uh, and and in truth, this Congress does receive some clean money from the Rockefeller and Ford Foundations, but the delegates would not have known that. Both the free trade union organizations and other foundations, like the Farfield Foundation, had were conduits for CIA money. The CIA set them up in order to, you know, to pass money through to, to favored organizations. Without that knowledge, the Chilean Committee of the Congress for Cultural Freedom tried to make its source of funding an asset. In a Q&A session of its new national magazine, Culture and Liberty, it argued that receiving money from private U.S. foundations did not make it an instrument of U.S. imperialism. He said, the very existence of private foundations it held proved the difference between the directed cultural world of the Soviet Union and totalitarian states in general, and one in which private organizations were allowed to operate without government control. Not a bad argument, except the, <laughs> that the private organizations that it's receiving money are, in fact, concealed <laughs> instruments of government power. Um, and Gorkin did some things like defending the so-called liberal nature of the very repressive government that, uh, of Carlos Castillo Armas, who overthrew the Jacobo Arbenz, the president of Guatemala in 1954, that, uh, seem, that are indeed rather offensive to the idea of cultural freedom or what they're supposed to stand for. 
Now, the, the Congress did other things in the field of culture, like in the Mexican context, trying to support painting that would break with what it understood as being a sort of local monopoly of Marxist painters like Rivera, uh, favoring the works of other artists like um, Jose Luis Cuevas, who had, were kind of rebelling against the, the, uh, the, the social realism of, uh, of, of painters like, of Marxist painters like Rivera, and favoring grotesques and abstract works that violated the principles of socialist realism quite deliberately. It's a sort of political form of painting, but it, its political messages, is, it's both is simultaneously anti-communist, it's a criticism of the Mexican government, which claims to be a revolutionary government, it's to have eliminated poverty, and they show the sort of existence of continuing poverty, and they say all those Marxist painters say they're on the left, but they just show these sort of heroic images of revolution, and they don't confront actual suffering that continues to exist, and so on. So it's operating at a number of, at a number of levels. And uh, also in, in the 1960s, the, the Congress for Cultural Freedom carries out a campaign to deny Pablo Neruda the Nobel Prize by reminding the Swedish committee of his involvement in the efforts to uh, kill Trotsky, help get one of the assassins out of the country, and also of that sort of... Uh, pro-Stalin poetry, which later became almost invisible. Now, their preferred candidate was the Argentine writer Jorge Luis Borges, um, and they tried to fly Borges to Sweden. Uh, they had him published in their London-based magazines like Encounter and things like that to try and raise his profile. said, here we have uh, an anti-communist artist, a great artist, who ought to win a Nobel, and we're going to try and support him and, and, uh, and discredit uh, Neruda. Now, that has been noticed before, but what was that not been noticed was that Neruda's great defender and translator in Sweden, the poet Arthur Lundqvist, counterbalanced the negative campaign by the Congress and was hardly a Cold War neutral. He was Neruda's friend. He had actually been a member of the World Peace, Peace Council and had received... Uh, the Lenin Peace Prize in 1958, which was given out mostly on uh, for work on behalf of the, of the World Peace Council. So these kinds of things, trying to stop Neruda, trying to push uh, anti-communist artists, are the kinds of things that you might expect a CIA-financed anti-communist cultural organization to do in a Latin American setting. But there are also a few genuinely surprising things that uh, that that happened. Uh, through that organization's actions. And probably the most significant was to provide really genuinely meaningful support to Fidel Castro during the Cuban Revolution. Remember, this is a CIA-funded body, and it uh, really helped Fidel Castro in the way that I'm about to describe. The key to making sense of all this is to understand the importance of the of, of the anti-communist left to Latin American politics in this period, especially because it's often overlooked. This, their analogs exist in Europe, too. I mean, even, you know, like the, the Labour Party in Britain, for example. This is not a communist, it's an anti-communist party, but it belongs on the left. And they're kind of analogs to that kind of thing uh, in many, many countries around the world. They're, uh, these are parties with that, you know, that kind of orientation. They seek out relationships with like-minded people in the United States, including liberals, left liberals, even socialists like Norman Thomas, who ran for president many times on the Socialist Party ticket in the United States. That was the kind of Congress's audience. And the question for them was, was Fidel Castro one of us? 
He had participated in a failed invasion of the Dominican Republic in the late 1940s, along with them, part of their sort of anti-dictatorial campaigns. There were plenty of people in the Congress who thought Castro is an anti-communist leftist like us. He's a nationalist revolutionary. He's not a communist revolutionary. A man named Mario Llerena, a journalist, was one of these. He recruited Cuban students to work for Castro during the fight against the dictator, Fulgencio Batista, before Castro comes to power, right, during the course of the 1950s, holding meetings in the building that would later become known as the Casa de las Americas, the House of the Americas, the Cuban government's major uh, cultural house, the great rival to the Congress for Cultural Freedom later on. They had meetings in the same building before Castro took uh, uh, power and, you know, successfully de after defeating uh, Batista. The man I mentioned, Mario Llerena, uh, met, first met Castro while in Mexico City for a Congress for Cultural Freedom event. And Llerena became one of Castro's media representatives in the United States, countering accusations that he was close to communists by declaring his impeccable anti-communist credentials. It was Yerena who smuggled the New York Times reporter, Herbert Matthews, into Cuba uh, to meet with Castro and disprove the Batista government's claims that it had killed Castro. It was the most important uh, propaganda coup of the, of the struggle against Batista. And things like Congress for Cultural Freedom publications were confiscated by Batista. He understood them as being firmly opposed to. So, even after the triumph of the revolution in 1959, after Batista's gone and Castro is the most powerful person in the country, most Congress for Cultural Freedom personnel remained convinced that Castro was on their side. There was a writer and essayist named Jorge Maniach who served a, on the jury for the very first uh, Casa de las Americas prizes, which was given to a story about agrarian reform, one of the important early achievements of the revolution. And as time went on, pressure on these social... Uh, as time went on, however, pressure on these social democratic allies grew and most returned to exile. The Casa de las Americas became a kind of official enemy of the Congress for Cultural Freedom in the region, as the Soviet Union had once been, uh, as the World Peace Council had once been. But to become this, both sides had to obscure how important they once had been to each other. As a result of the Cuban Revolution in the 1960s, the Congress for Cultural Freedom was preoccupied with making a move to the left in order to appeal to the radical generation inspired by the Cuban example. Cuadernos, the magazine, the Congress magazine I mentioned earlier, was totally moribund and boring at this point. The Mexican satirist uh, Jorge Ibarguengoitia mocked it in one of his short stories by writing, quote, Cuadernos, which I had never read, had a decidedly anti-communist air. But on studying it carefully, I began to suspect that it was just the opposite. That is, an apparently anti-communist magazine made by the communists to discredit the anti-communists. Now, this it was not. But it was bad enough that it was replaced. It was replaced by something called Mundo Nuevo. As good a magazine as Cuadernos was bad. It took a very different tone and was called by the Chilean writer Jose Donoso in his memoirs of the boom in Latin American literature. This is after all the time where Latin American writers become internationally famous and begin selling millions of copies. Uh, Donoso called Mundo Nuevo the voice of Latin American literature of its time. Its editor was a, a man named Amir Rodriguez Monegal, an open-minded Uruguayan who wanted to engineer a thaw in Latin America's artistic Cold War. 
His view of the responsibility of the intellectual, however, leaned not toward the political commitment that Cuba expected of its intellectual allies, but rather towards the, an idea of perpetual rebellion. A writer's actions are words, Carlos Fuentes and Rodriguez Manigal agreed in the interview that established Mundo Nuevo's tone. Here it is, the first, the first cover of the first issue. Um, the essential function of the writer, Rodriguez Manigal argued, is to call into question the world as it exists through the use of words. For this reason, McCarthyists of the right and left want to stop us from talking. For Rodriguez Manigal and Fuentes, the writer's commitment was revolutionary because it called into question existing relations of power, not because it submitted to revolutionary discipline the way that uh, Cuban writers were expected to do. And the writer's freedom consisted in Fuentes's words in, quote, maintaining some room for heresy. Sometimes people have interpreted this as opening the door for criticism of the United States in the pages of, uh, of Mundo Nuevo. And indeed, Mundo Nuevo criticized the war in Vietnam. It also featured writers. It featured poetry by Pablo Neruda, who just a couple of years earlier, the Congress had been trying to you know, uh, rob of the Nobel Prize. He didn't get it that year. He did get it later. Um, and in uh, this very early issue, is the second issue, there's a, an excerpt from A Hundred Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. This is before that book had been published. It would soon be published and become the greatest of all the boom novels in, in reputation. And, uh, and Gabriel Garcia Marquez is best known politically for being a very close personal friend to Fidel Castro. Right? So this was very much a more open-minded, as supposed to be a magazine uh, of dialogue. Uh, and it was willing to criticize uh, U.S. politics important, in Im important ways. As I mentioned, it criticized the war in Vietnam. Now, the editor, Rodriguez Manigal, confessed privately that the magazine that's been accused of having links to the CIA, you kind of have to criticize the war in Vietnam to have any credibility. And he said in a private letter, things like, we have no interest in defending the CIA. But he also said, in a bit of private bravado, it, my position is that if the CIA is surreptitiously paying for Mundo Nuevo, blessed be the CIA, because this magazine does not play their game. However, it did in ways I think he didn't recognize. If it were successful, his magazine would redefine the writer's commitment, not as one of revolutionary responsibility to social transformation, but of critical independence. And since the dominant idea influenced by Cuba was the other one, uh, this was, would have been an achievement that would have been useful to the United States, at least in a limited way. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. 
And it was, in that way, a part of U.S. power, in spite of those criticisms of other elements of U.S. power, a fact that was quickly realized when revelations came out in 1966 and 1967, that what the Cuban government had said was, you know, that this was a CIA-funded thing, were proven to be true. It was published in the New York Times. It was published in, here in San Francisco. And the initial expose was done by Ramparts Magazine here in, here in San Francisco. And uh, Rodriguez Manigal developed a kind of fantastical response saying that the CIA had funded people like him in order to discredit him. And that wasn't true either, but in its effects, it sort of might as well have been. All right. So um, the idea of, of fronts that we get from this era in which everyone is some kind of dupe or puppet for larger interests, I think in the end, does not serve us well to sort of uh, understand the broader politics of what's going on here. The pro-Soviet World Peace Council was a front, and yet some of its most, uh, many of its local initiatives had to be self-financed. It was not a sort of slush fund of Moscow gold uh, all around the world. People had to buy their way into it, so to speak. And uh, I get into this in the book, but in Mexico in the 1960s, there was the, the peace movement helps to cultivate some social movements that uh, keep out foreign money and um, uh, and actually don't really express any kind of uh, communist politics. So uh, that's, not, that's noteworthy not only for the degree that these sort of larger movements are influenced by peace campaigns, but are taken by uh, by local uh, politicians and artists uh, deviate from communism, but also because that in there in Mexico, they really defend the idea of civil liberties, which is the kind of thing that we generally associate with anti-communist politics in the context of the Cold War. Um, but people like the Congress for Cultural Freedoms, Rodrigo Garcia Trevino, who I mentioned, working are working behind the scenes with the Mexican government to suppress uh, to suppress that form of popular expression, to suppress those civic organizations and actually sponsor rival fake civic organizations to beat back the, that challenge. So it's undeniably true that World Peace Council participants were culpably naive, perhaps deliberately so, about the Soviet Union, but they rationalized their naivete by arguing that it's not the Soviet Union but the United States that's responsible for, their greatest, for the greatest suffering in their home countries. That kind of argument would not be true in Eastern Europe. Obviously, the reverse would be true. But in the Latin American context, they have uh, a reasonable argument. Um, and uh, like I mentioned, there are sometimes examples of movements that are fostered that are not, uh, not communist at all. On the anti-communist side, uh, with, the, with the Congress for Cultural Freedom, it's another complicated case. But consider just for a moment that the most consequential political action is to support Fidel Castro's ascent to power. So, yes, this is an organization that is designed to um, build consent for U.S. rule in the hemisphere and for U.S. authority uh, around the globe in the Cold War context. But, in spite of being part of those plans, Many of its effects seem to me to look ironic. I mean, that uh, to have helped Castro come to power, he becomes the great 
the great enemy and remains <laughs> remains there uh, you know some 50 years uh, later no longer head of state but still uh, a thorn in the side of the United States at least until the last up until the last couple of years and so the Congress for Cultural Freedom which by its actions by its work is supposed to have discredited communism also by its existence and its exposure as a CIA front does discredit anti-communism and the anti-communist cause at the same time. So what can we learn from all of these histories? A couple of things I think are relevant today. First, in the last 15 years, most of Latin America has been governed by governments of the left. But most agree that not all of these lefts have been the same. And most people see two, one more radical, uh, aligned with Cuba. Um, the emblematic figure of this left was Venezuela's Hugo Chavez, right, until uh, he died a couple of years ago. And he saw himself as building a 21st century socialism while his opponents saw him as a sort of authoritarian uh, clown. <laughs> By contrast, countries like Chile and Brazil uh, had been governed by a moderate left that was more market-oriented, that was less of a challenge to international systems, but supposed to be, still be progressive, providing programs to help bring people out of poverty and so on. And one thing that we might observe from the Cold War history that we just covered is that these divisions on the left in Latin America and elsewhere are by no means new. These are the same, essentially the same ones, modified by time, of course, but the, essentially the same ones that were debated during, during the Cold War, and they have some of the same problems. That is, it's hard for the moderate left to confront established power, and they compromise with it, just like the Congress for Cultural Freedom compromised with the United States to achieve its ends. So too do these, some of these governments of the moderate left compromise with, uh, uh, with, uh, uh, with international systems which uh, advantage the United States today. Uh, in other ways, their moderation has led them to have to confront national sources of power in the traditional manner, which involves a great deal of corruption. And this is now coming back to sort of haunt some of these uh, sort of moderate left governments, especially the one in, in Brazil. And of course, the more radical left seeking to remake its country's institutions has indeed sometimes been authoritarian. They remake them to their own to their own advantage, though uh, they have not always been as authoritarian as their opponents claim. They have indeed been authoritarian in important ways. Uh, and so just like in the Cold War, I think different parts of the left advocated democratic practices in some contexts while excusing authoritarian ones in others. If we think back to the politically engaged artists and intellectuals who participated in the Cold War, they too had been defenders of both liberation and oppression simultaneously, regardless of the side that they chose. And that, I think, is an important point. They enjoyed neither peace nor freedom as they worked to produce art and ideas, and they obtained neither through the roles that they played in the Cold War. The sin of Cold War intellectuals, which was their voluntary or quasi-voluntary allegiance to powerful empires, either the Soviet Union or the United States, or in a slightly different way, perhaps Cuba, was possible only because states saw them as repositories of moral authority. This is something that we have, that we have lost. These days, the CIA does not give money to, <laughs> to artists something that uh, 
perhaps ought to be celebrated, but uh, but um, but one does occasionally hear, you know, they said, well, wasn't it nice when the CIA cared enough about <laughs> about art to give it some money? <laughs> um, and there you can, I think, that, that both the shame and the glory of intellectuals in the 20th century, you can see as fibers woven into, woven into the same fabric. And that fabric turned out to be, for everyone involved, dirty laundry. All right, I will stop there. Time for questions. I'd like to raise a question by juxtaposition with the US where we have had a recent rehabilitation of figures like Dalton Trumbo and the Black Panther Party uh, at a, who functioned at a time when if one wanted to work against, quote, oppression, one had many alternatives in the states, be it Norman Thomas mm -hmm. or Debs or Upton Sinclair's work. People like Dalton Trumbo did not have to join the CP. Mm -hmm. People like Dalton Trumbo did not have to try and sort short circuit artists whose perspective differs with the, C the CP. Mm -hmm. Okay, now back to Latin America. Before Mundo, before the 60s, yeah. how much sympathy do you have with artists who were also activists in their work but found that the only camaraderie or support they had were members of the Stalinist CP and therefore felt compelled to find support where they could find it, no matter how odious? You know, uh, this is such a good question because it gets at um, the very difficult um, moral situation that artists were in and the very difficult moral situation that a historian has to enter into in order to, I don't know, sit in judgment of the decisions that were made. Um, the thing that always impressed me when uh, when I looked at the the artist's engagement with with politics, and especially with the Communist Party, because the Communist Party has a has a a, a greater symbolic importance than any of the other parties to which one could have belonged. You can belong to Norman Thomas's Socialist Party and go about your day. But the one that's really getting persecuted is the Communist Party, and it gives it a kind of halo of, uh, I mean, that, that persecution grants it a certain kind of nobility that its politics mean that it doesn't deserve. I think the same thing is operating both in the United States and, and in Latin America in that way. That if the Communist Party didn't have that, uh, that kind of special place uh, in uh, in the public imaginary uh, and in the government's idea of being the really dangerous one, then uh, it wouldn't have been so appealing to 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 people. Right? But that means that they supported a party, you know, and, and they're doing it at this time, you know, prior to 1953, prior to Stalin's death. I mean, these are some of the worst times to live. If you're a Soviet artist. Uh, you know, you're probably going through a kind of uh, one sort of horrible experience or another. 
And they know it. I mean, the artists from the West know that this is happening to their friends in the Soviet Union. If you're a communist artist in the West, you travel to the Soviet Union, you meet with people. So there are, there are stories, for example, of the, the great singer and actor Paul Robeson, right, African-American singer here in the United States, uh, who, who goes to the Soviet Union and meets with his Jewish friend Itzik Pfeffer. Uh, and Pfeffer, at this time, because this is a time of anti-Semitism, is in prison and will die. Robeson supposedly meets with him in 1949, and um, and Pfeffer has to sort of communicate. You know, Pfeffer has to tell him everything's fine, and he has to sort of communicate under the table that things are in fact not fine. And Robeson does a couple of things. One is he gives a concert in the in the Soviet Union, where he sings in Yiddish, which is an extraordinary, extraordinarily courageous thing to have done. And then he comes back to the United States, and the people ask him, we hear there's anti-Semitism in the Soviet Union. We hear some Jewish artists are locked up. And he says, nothing of the kind has happened. So he was willing to be courageous in one context, and an example of moral cowardice in the other. And it was because they were, you know, whether the decision was, was right or wrong, it seems wrong to me to have done that. But the, I think the calculus was that if we say these bad things about the Soviet Union, we're going to destroy this utopia. We're going to destroy people's hopes. We're going to, I mean, if people in the West don't know the truth about the Soviet Union, they're, you know, constantly lied to by the press. And, well, and so... You know, we need to hang on to this. We can't be honest about it because those are the bad things that the right has always been saying. And if we say them too, we'll, we'll lose our place in the communist community. We'll lose our ability to influence, protect our friends, things like that. There's another example. Um, uh, Jorge Madu, the Brazilian novelist, uh, his friend um, Bertolt Brecht, East German playwright, right? is writing, and he keeps getting in trouble with the authorities because he's funny. <laughs> and um, and uh, Amadou arranges for him to win one of those prizes. At the time, it was called the Stalin Prize. This is sort of an official seal of approval. You win the Stalin Prize, then you can say what you want. So Amadou helps him, you know, he helps his friend. He helps his friend win the Stalin Prize, the authorities get off his back. So if he had gone out there and he was saying, you know, all kinds of anti-communist things, he would never have had that ability. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a trap that forces you to be immoral if you're in it. Uh, and a lot of them get out. I mean, Amadu distances himself, but it, it, took them, it took time for them to make that decision. And some never quite do. Pablo Neruda remains in the Communist Party. He's never willing to make a break that will, you know, that will be good for the bourgeoisie and give them the satisfaction of having him break with the Communist Party. But he does change the kind of communist that he is. He becomes a more moderate. The Chilean Communist Party becomes a rather moderate Communist Party that believes in democratic participation. And, uh, and so that's the kind of communist that he becomes. And I can respect that, even if I don't share every element of his politics. Uh, thank you very much for a sophisticated analysis of, of, of Latin thank, American culture. Thank you all very much.
And so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in its 113th year of enlightened discussion. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you for joining us for this week-to-week -week presentation of a recent Commonwealth Club program. I'm John Zipperer, host of Week to Week, and I invite you to find us online at commonwealthclub.org and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks so much for tuning in today. For more on us and other programs or podcasts you might have missed, you can head to michellemeow.com. See you all next week. Tune into the Michelle Meow Show weekdays at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 Eastern on Progressive Voices. Thank you.